Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. When I was in high school, I, like many of my friends, was super into cars. And so I had scraped up a bunch of money uh, to buy a little black coupe that was sort of tricked out. And uh, not to brag, but it was a Hyundai, all right? And uh, I uh, would drive this around, have fun, whatever. And then I came to Jesus and kind of realized the vanity of all of that and decided to go study Bible halfway across the country in Chicago. And so I left Oregon State uh, to go to Chicago. And uh, Chicago has a pretty good public transportation system. And so I didn't need to bring a car. So I left it there with my parents. And then I came back a couple years later, the summer before my junior year, to get married in Oregon. And uh, that summer I decided, you know what, I'm just going to sell this car. Over the last couple of years, some things had begun to break down on the car anyway. So there's like a crack across the windshield. Uh, the seatbelt mechanism had broken and the window motor on the passenger side had died. And I figured, okay, I'd put some money into this thing and some miles, but I could probably still sell this for uh, $6,000. So I bought it for eight. I can probably get six for it. Tried to sell it for six. No takers. Lowered it to 5000 no takers. So I lowered it to four and still nobody wanted to buy this thing. And by this time, it was the end of the summer. I had gotten married. It was time for me to leave back to Chicago. And so I decided, you know, what? I'm just gonna leave it again with my parents. And I gave my younger sister uh, the opportunity to drive it as she needed. So a couple months later, my sister is driving the car and she feels the transmission start to go out. It's a stick shift. And so she starts to drive back to my parents' house. Now, what you need to know about my parents' house is it, it was at the top of a large hill, a very steep hill. And as she's going up the hill, the transmission goes out entirely. So she quickly pulls the car over to the side of the road and pulls the emergency brake and walks the ra- rest of the way back up to my parents' house, uh, where she finds my dad, who is less than pleased because, in his words, at least she could have driven it to a mechanic shop because we now have this car that's not even worth $4,000 that needs to be towed to a shop to have a couple more thousand dollars in transmission work done. And so my dad is angry. He doesn't even have the stomach to call me and tell me what's happened. But a couple days later, uh, my dad gets a knock on the door and it's one of our neighbors. And uh, our neighbor says, hey, Craig, is that your guys' black coupe down the street parked? And and my dad says, yeah, why? They say, you need to come look at this. And so he follows my neighbor down the road. And uh, when he comes, he sees my car parked exactly where my sister left it, except the entire front end of the car is smashed in. Uh, So apparently a neighbor across the street had had a friend over, and when that friend was backing out, instead of stepping on the brake, had slammed on the gas instead, sending them careening across the road to smash into my car. So a couple days later, I get a call from a very compassionate, concerned insurance person say, Corey, I'm very sorry to tell you. I have some bad news. Your car has been totaled. And we'll try to make it right. We're going to send a check for $7,000. And again, I'm very sorry. To which I said, I will try to not let it ruin the rest of my day. So here was this car that was broken down, worthless on the side of the road. And the number of things that had to come into play to make a way for this to be uh, resolved well were just impossible. There was just no way. And yet, apparently there was a way. We are three weeks into a summer series called The Big God Story. It's going to take us through the rest of the summer, and we're tracing the storyline of the Bible. And today we're going to plunk down in a passage that hammers home the point that even when it looks like there is no way that God can make 
away. Last week, we talked about uh, how, uh, first, first week, we talked about God's good creation, how God created this beautiful world uh, full of harmony and peace. It was God's shalom. And then in week two, we talked about how this shalom got disrupted when sin entered the world and, and introduced brokenness sort of on every level. But even though God's good creation had been marred by sin and rebellion, his choice was not to walk away and abandon it, but to lean in, to redeem and rescue And to do that, he chose his rescue team, which happened to be an old couple, Abraham and Sarah. And and God then said, through your family, I'm going to bless the entire world. Your family is going to become so numerous that it'll be like the sand on the shores and the stars in the sky. And so we've already seen how God makes a way when there's no way. Abraham and Sarah had a boy, despite their old age, a young boy named Isaac. And Isaac had a son named Jacob. And Jacob had a son named Joseph. And Joseph became this powerful uh, person in Egypt, a high political position. And at the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph is gathered with his brothers and he says these words to them. He says, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land, Egypt, to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So at the end of Genesis, we can see, okay, God's promise is starting to come together. Joseph is powerful. He's got sway in Egypt, and and surely he's going to parlay his power to to get his people into this promised land, and the promise is going to become true. But a few verses into Exodus, we see things take a very bad turn. Between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus are 400 years where God is apparently silent. And even though Joseph's descendants are numerous, they've multiplied in the land of Egypt, they still don't have a land to call their own. And the large number of Hebrews has started to make Pharaoh nervous. And so he actually says, you know what, I'm going to make them slaves, put them to forced labor. labor. And on top of that, he, he tries to exert some population control and orders the midwives in Egypt to kill any Hebrew baby that is born. This is what's happening in Exodus. This is the setting. Things are not looking good for the Israelites. It looks like God has given up on his project to redeem Israel to save the world through it. Israel is is now slaves. They're oppressed. They're trampled on and despised. But the reality is God has not given up. He has not walked away. As much as it may look like it, things are not spinning out of control. He's heard the cries of his people and he's preparing to make a move. And to do it, he grabs this dude named Moses. He, he appears to Moses in the form of a burning bush. And he says, Moses, you've got a mission. Go to Pharaoh and demand that he let go the Israelites. Let them go. So there's going to be this face-off between these two men. But here's what you need to know about these two men. So Pharaoh was the leader of the most powerful empire in the world at that time. And Moses was born a slave and became a fugitive. Pharaoh was a a person who grew up in royalty and privilege. He knew from the start that his future was set. And Moses was born a Hebrew, born during a kill order on baby boys. And the only reason that he was alive is because two of Pharaoh's midwives used their opportunity instead of to run Pharaoh's abortion program to save the Hebrew baby boys they were tasked to kill and to lie to Pharaoh about it. And by the way, their names are Shifra and Pua, those two midwives. The only reason we know their names is because they're written down for us. Posterity, generation after generation to read. These two lowly midwives, we know their names. It's pretty cool if you ask me. 
Pharaoh is untouchable. He actually thinks he is a god. He's built up this society around him, exploiting humans to serve his needs. Moses is a member of the exploited class. He's on the margins and he's scared. And so when God comes to Moses and said, hey, here's the plan, Moses' response is, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. Yeah, I, I am not uh, adequate. I am not your guy. The deck is stacked against me. There's just no way. And God's response is, hey, it's not about you. It's not about your power. You think there's no way, but watch me as I make a way. So Moses and his brother Aaron, who is his right-hand man, go approach Pharaoh and they ask that Pharaoh just set his people free into the wilderness for a worship gathering. And Pharaoh just treats us like a bad joke. He says, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. See, from his perspective, the slaves are just getting restless. They've got time on their hands. They need to be put back into their place. And so he makes their work even harder. And now the deck becomes even more stacked against Moses because now even his own people he's trying to free are set against him. They're bitter that he has made their lives even more miserable. And it's at this point that God says to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of this country. And next come the famous plagues in Egypt, right? So water turning into blood, infestations of frogs and gnats and flies and locusts, diseases for both animals and humans, hail raining down from the sky, darkness covering the whole land. And now I know what you're thinking. Okay, a nationwide pandemic that like threw the entire economy off kilter and, 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 and shut down everything. There's, there's just no way that could happen, right? Now you have to suspend your disbelief for a moment. That actually did happen. But these plagues, they didn't all just come at once, right? Pharaoh had chances along the way over and over again to relent, to let the Israelites go. But over and over again, we're told that he hardened his heart towards God. He said, no, absolutely not. He digs in his heels and backtracks on his promises to release the Israelites. In a nutshell, this is how evil Pharaoh is. His own insecurities lead him to use the power of his office to stoke racial hatred and fear. There's literally a sustained pandemic that's wrecking his country and putting the livelihood and safety of thousands of citizens in jeopardy. And despite warning after warning and pleas from his own officials, he refuses to take it seriously because of his own arrogance and self-serving agenda. And through Pharaoh's hard-heartedness, God is using the plagues to systematically dismantle the power structure that Pharaoh has built up for himself. And all the while, God has demonstrated that all of these gods in Egypt are false gods. They're not even gods at all. So, so God's like, are you have a God of the Nile? Watch as I make it into blood. Oh, you have a God of the sky? Watch as I make it rain down hail. Oh, you think you have a God who's going to guard your crops? Watch as I make them wither with a word. And on and on this goes. It's a national embarrassment as against all odd, odds, this lowly Hebrew with a speech impediment, goes head to head with Pharaoh and suddenly the foundations of all that Pharaoh has built up are beginning to crumble beneath him. 
those of you who are Hamilton fans, uh, you have undoubtedly had a fantastic week, right? Disney Plus released all two hours and 40 glorious minutes to their streaming service on July 3rd. And, and if you know Hamilton's story, you know he was an incredibly talented and gifted young man who overcame all sorts of obstacles. He was tenacious. But if you know Hamilton's story, you also know that there were like a number of circumstances that, that coalesced at just the right moment for him to be able to have the impact that he had. All right? so, so he was born right at the cusp of the American Revolution, a ripe opportunity. Uh, he had people around him uh, pool together money to send him to the American colonies from the island where he was born. Uh, when he got there, he met people and became friends with those who would later climb the ladders of power and use their influence to help Hamilton succeed in his endeavors. And perhaps most of all, he was tapped on the shoulder by George Washington himself, who just at that time was looking for a man who had skill with a quill, right? And so Hamilton, through the alignment and lots of circumstances, had his shot and he didn't throw it away, right? And so we look at a man like Hamilton who had all these things line up and a, a way was made for him. And, and then we look at a man like Moses and we ask the question, how does a Hebrew baby, son of two parents in slavery, dropped in the middle of a forsaken spot in the Nile River and by providence encumbered by a stutter, grow up to free a nation with his brother? Okay, that's the first time I've ever rapped in a sermon. If my wife has anything to say about it, it will for sure be the last time, okay? See, Moses reminds us that the kind of people that God uses are not the larger-than-life, super-capable, ultra-holy, ready-to-go kind of people. He uses ordinary folks, people with small beginnings and complicated pasts and hurts and hang-ups and excuses, and he draws them out and sets them on a mission to do amazing things. So how does Moses stack up against Pharaoh? Not well. But the God behind Moses? Now that's a different story. There's no way this little unqualified Moses can take on Pharaoh. But when there's no way, God makes a way. By the end of the ninth plague, Pharaoh's officials are pleading with him to let the Israelites go, but he won't. So God warns Pharaoh through Moses that there is a 10th plague coming. And this plague is going to be different. It's going to be more severe. And before it happens, God instructs Moses to tell the Israelites that they will need to do something very specific before the plague comes. All right, so picking it up in Exodus chapter 12, verse 21. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, which is a plant, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the tops and the sides of your door frame and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it's the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshiped. 
the Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all of his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was a loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. Okay, so you see what's happening here. There's this destroyer coming. God sends a warning, and it comes with a provision. God says, there's a way that you make it out of this alive. And that is by taking a lamb and making it sacrifice, a sacrifice in your place. That is my provision for you. And when you do that, the angel of death will pass over you. Okay, so, but some of you are wondering, what is the deal with this killing of the firstborn in the first place, right? If you're like me, this story can make you uncomfortable. It rubs against our kind of modern Western sensibilities of justice, right? If Pharaoh is the one who has the hard heart, why are all of the families in Egypt being punished with the death of a firstborn? It's a good question. It's one worth wrestling with, but, but I, I'm not convinced that the goal ought to be to make ourselves totally comfortable with this story. It's, it's a gruesome series of events, but here are a few things to consider, okay? First, the 10th plague is God bringing retributive justice on Pharaoh. Okay, so it's, it harkens back to when Pharaoh put that kill order on baby boys that were Hebrew, okay? So, so Romans chapter 12 says that vengeance belongs to the Lord. And that's what we see playing out here. Second, the people in Egypt are, are part of a society that has corruption and oppression baked into the very culture. In other words, they're enjoying the benefits of living in a nation that was built on the backs of slaves. And so even if they don't personally own any slaves, they are complicit in a larger system. And third, it's important to understand the role that firstborns played in Egyptian culture. The firstborns were heirs of their family. They would inherit the wealth and the power of the family. They were the symbol of the future. So to take away the firstborn would mean to dismantle the aspirations and the hope and the legacy of an Egyptian family. And this would have sent shockwaves throughout Egypt for sure. But to take away Pharaoh's firstborn was a whole nother level. See, Pharaoh was believed to be a god himself. He was believed to be the manifestation of the sun god, Ra, who oversaw the entire land of Egypt. And Pharaoh's son, upon his death, would assume the divinity. He would become the new manifestation of Ra. So, so, so what does this Passover mean for Pharaoh and his family? Uh, some of you have seen uh, the TV show called Designated Survivor. It uh, premiered in 2016, and it features Kiefer Sutherland. It's basically like if Jack Bauer like, was less angry and started playing by the rules, okay? So, so it opens with this beginning ep episode, and uh, 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 Kiefer Sutherland, I almost said Jack Bauer, Kiefer Sutherland uh, plays the Secretary of um, Housing and Urban Development, okay? And he is watching on TV the State of the Union Address, and as the president is giving the State of the Union address, the building in which he is, uh, there's a bomb that goes off, destroying the entire building and everybody inside, including the vice president and everybody who's in line of presidential succession. Everybody's killed in that line except for one person, Kiefer Sutherland. He, he is the designated survivor. He's held off-site for just such an occasion as this. He is to ensure that the country has continued leadership in the event of a catastrophic disaster. 
the, the firstborn son of Pharaoh, was the next in line of the divine succession. He was supposed to become the new manifestation of God when Pharaoh dies. And so when Pharaoh's firstborn son dies in the middle of a nationwide emergency, it wasn't just the loss of a son. It was the loss of identity. It, it was to jeopardize the very future of Egypt. So, so that's what's going on with the death of the firstborn in this story. But it's really important to catch what the story hinges on. Okay, so think back to God's instructions to Moses before the plague comes. Why is it that the Israelites were required to sacrifice a lamb? See, the Passover story is not that Egypt is guilty while the Israelites are innocent. See, the Israelites have a problem too. Yes, they have been subjected to a system of idolatry and sin, but as they look at their own hearts— They see those same things present there too. So an angel of death is coming soon, but both of these groups were staring down the barrel of God's justice. So the difference between the Israelites and the Egyptians is not one is sinful and the other is not, but rather a matter of whose blood is shed. For the Egyptians, the blood was their own. For the Israelites, the blood was that of a lamb, a substitute. In the Passover, we see what would become a landmark moment in the story of Israel. It's a time when God's people were desperate, unable to help themselves. They were slaves. They could not go on living as they had been. They deeply desired justice. But the problem is that God's justice, it's not partial. The angel of destruction was going to come and destroy sinners. It was going to land on every house, including theirs. So so on the one hand, no justice meant continuing the status quo, slavery. But on the other hand, justice meant that death would come to all houses. So you see the problem. So what happens? Well, where there's no way, God makes a way. God intervened and provided a solution that wasn't there before. A way out. This way out meant that justice would land and blood, yes, would be shed. But the blood would be the blood of another. It would be a sacrifice on their behalf that would mean that they would go free. And it was a sacrifice that was an arrow pointing forward to a much greater sacrifice later in the big God story. See, you and I, friends, are standing here in 2020, and as we look out at the world, we see chaos and division. We have a pandemic, we have racial unrest, and it's, a, it's an election year. This is a perfect recipe for conflict and fracture. And our natural response towards those who we think are in the wrong is to demand justice for them. But the reality is, as we look inside our own hearts, we see that we too are divided and full of sin. And so if justice were to come in the same way that it would be bad news for whoever we have labeled as them, it would be bad news for us too. In a world of us versus them, the Passover story shows us that we all have this hugely significant thing in common. That we are sinners in need of rescue if there is going to be any hope for us. So imagine, friends, if we looked out at those who were different from us, different in in skin color, in convictions, in politics, in wealth, in class. Imagine instead of distancing and demonizing, we highlighted just how much the same we are, fellow sinners in need of rescue. Imagine the humility and the compassion that that would produce. And imagine the transformation around us that would follow. In a world where the Israelites were victimized and hurting, they were literally painting their doors with blood as an act of saying, I am a sinner in need of grace. 
And friends, our world is hurting. We need less partisan division and more painted doors. We need less whitewashed tombs and more painted doors. We need less finger pointing and more painted doors. What if in the midst of a broken and chaotic world where there's apparently no way for justice and peace to coexist, what if God is making a way? Church, what if the way that God is making forward is us? What if we are the way that God is showing to the world? So this is what happens next. In the middle of the night after the Passover has happened, Pharaoh says to Moses and Aaron, up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go worship the Lord as you've requested. Take your flocks and herds as you've said and go. Then he says this, and also bless me. So Pharaoh's finally ready for them to get out of Dodge. He finally sees that behind Moses is this really powerful God. And he says, get out. But then he makes this really awkward request. He says, also, also will you bless me? And then there's just no response from Moses in the text, which I sort of think speaks for itself. Now, something really important to note, as the, Egypt, or as the Israelites are, are leaving, the, the direction they were headed is towards the promised land. If you remember, that is Canaan, which was northeast of where they were in Egypt. So the shortest way to go to get there would be to travel along the Mediterranean coastline. But instead of going that way, God sends them in the exact, or in a very different direction. And and the reason why is explicitly given. God says this. He says, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road towards the Red Sea. So the shorter route, uh, northeast, would have taken the Israelites directly through the territory of the Philistines, which were like a really powerful military presence at the time. And even though God was with them, and he easily could have swatted the Philistines aside, God knew that the Israelites were not at a place, even though after everything they'd been through, they were still not at a place where they would trust him no matter what. So so it's sort of like if you get in your car to go on sort of a a road trip and and you forget your I-pass. So you pull out your GPS and you check that little box that says avoid tolls. You're like, okay, I got to go a little bit longer way because I forgot my I-pass. It's like that, except for the Israelites, they forgot their faith. And so they have to check a box that says avoid Philistines. But instead of like 20 miles, it's like 400 miles in the wrong direction. Like you forget your faith, the long way it is. And so that's what happened. And they set out on their journey. And, And by the way, God is leading them with his presence with them in the form of a pillar of of cloud and fire, giant pillar. And you'd think at this point, they've left Egypt, that the story would be over, but it's not. Even though the Israelites are now out of Egypt and on the road, God is not through with Pharaoh yet. And so he tells Moses to command the Israelites to do something very strange. He tells them to turn around to retrace their steps, backtrack and camp at a very strange place so that Pharaoh would look at them and think they were lost and confused and come after them again. And God's plan works. Pharaoh receives word that Israel appears to be lost and trapped and he changes his mind and he gathers up like hundreds of chariots to go find the Israelites and take them back by force. And he charges out to the Israelites. He's got them trapped against the shoreline of the Red Sea. He's got them outgunned and outmanned, outnumbered, but not outplanned. When any hope of success seemed fleeting, Moses stands before the Israelites and says this. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. 
The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. This is like the pinnacle verse of the Exodus narrative. It's one of the clearest, most gospel-centered, grace-drenched passages in the entire Old Testament. The Israelites are weak and they are trapped. They have no chariots. They have no courage. They have nowhere to run. And God shows up with this command. He says, hey, sit still, stop being afraid, and watch this. God wants to make it perfectly clear that what's about to happen is not a group effort. Okay? It's a rescue. So what does he do? God tells Moses to stretch out his hand with the staff in it towards the sea. And then the unthinkable happens. The sea parts down the middle, leaving a stretch of dry ground for the Israelites to walk on. And so the Israelite caravan is like, all right. So they start making their way through the sea, again, accompanied by the pillar of God's presence. But Pharaoh's army pursues right after them. But about halfway through, they realize they've made a terrible mistake. That This God of Israel is powerful even outside of Egypt and he is winning. And so they hightail it, try to turn around and retreat. But before they can, God crashes the walls of water back down on them, defeating them entirely. And then chapter 14 closes with these words. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians laying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. So the first part of Exodus ends with Israel not just being set free, but God enticing the Egyptians out into the middle of the desert to show the Egyptians that for God, there is no such thing as an away game. It is all his turf. Behind them is a powerful enemy and in front of them is this impossible task. They are, they are incapable of crossing the sea on their own. There's no way of escape. And then God steps in and says, sit back, watch this. Watch me make a way when there is no way. Exodus literally means a way out and a way out God did make. He makes a dry walking path through the sea. And by the way, this is not some low tide moment that the Israelites timed right. This is not a, a wind that kind of blew and, and dried up the water. This is walls of water on either side. This is God making a way when there was no way. But from the perspective of the Israelites, the journey had some confusing twists and turns, right? And this matters for us today because listen, if you, friend, feel like you're just kind of wandering around in life, like you're not making progress in the way that you want to, that your obedience to God means that you feel turned around, like you're backtracking and retracing your steps, like you are in the wilderness. Just know this, even when it feels like you are backtracking, God's plan is still advancing. God's plan in and through your life, there's more to it than meets the eye. And when your obedience leads you to a place where you feel like you're stuck between an obstacle and an enemy and there's no way out, trust in the God who makes a way out, even when it looks like there's no way. And throughout the twists and turns, feeling trapped, Remember this, God's presence never left the Israelites. The cloud of God's presence made one thing clear to Israel along the whole way, the difficult journey. God was saying, I will be with you always. At the beginning of Exodus, 
shalom is broken. God's people don't know who they are. God's presence feels distant. They're not in their own place. They don't have a purpose. This is not the way things should be. But by the end of the Exodus story, God begins to tie back together these broken strands. And the story ends with the hope that God is on the move, that he is doing something new and incredible. After 400 years in a shaken identity, feeling distant from God, kept in a land that is not their own, living as slaves, God's salvation is a holy interruption. And years later, God would bring another holy interruption. God's people would again be under the thumb of a superpower without having heard God's voice for hundreds of years. Another evil ruler would use his power to put a kill order on baby boys, but another baby boy would escape. This was a boy who would forsake the benefits of royalty to save his people. This was a boy who would become a man who would command the wind and the waves with the word and would usher in a new Passover. But this time, he himself would be called the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And this Passover would usher in a newer and better exodus. Once again, God would say to his people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring today. The enemies you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Before the Red Sea, there was not a category for entering through a sea onto dry land. And before Jesus, before the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there was not a category for uh, a path to be made through death that would lead to life. But that's exactly the path that Jesus made for us. Behind us is a powerful enemy called Satan, and he is out to steal and kill and destroy. And before us is the impossible task of living righteously. That's a sea that we cannot cross on our own. By ourselves, there is no way out. But just like God made a way out for the Israelites, when there was no way, God has made a way out for us too. At the cross, Jesus showed himself to be our Passover lamb whose blood was shed so that we might not suffer for sin. He died so that we might find life in him. And in his resurrection, he defeated death and he revealed himself to be our path forward. He made the way and he led the way. The work is done and he calls us to trust and follow. So friends, will you trust and follow the savior who made a way? As the Israelites emerged on the other side of the sea, they encountered a new uncertainty. See, they knew that they had been set free from their chains, but it was yet to be made clear what they were set free for. That question is still hanging. Slavery is behind them, but in front of them is a desert. So how is God going to pick up these pieces of a broken shalom and bring them back together for Israel? This is the question that they face when they reach the other side of the Red Sea. And this is where we're gonna pick it up next week as we continue the big God story. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the story of Exodus. We thank you for the record of scripture that shows us the legacy of your faithfulness. 
God, thank you that you fight battles on our behalf and that you have fought and won the biggest battle of all. Thank you, Jesus, for being our great Passover lamb, for making a way when there was no way, and for leading us out of sin and death. God, may your love humble us and and give us hope. May we be agents of compassion and healing and reconciliation in a broken world. And in in the midst of a really hard year, God, would you make a way and would you lead the way? We will trust and follow you. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.